This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello and welcome to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist out of Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I began Self Work four and a half years ago in order to extend the walls of my practice to many groups. Those of you who might already be interested in psychological phenomenon or be working in therapy on issues, to those of you who've just been diagnosed or your children have been diagnosed with some kind of problem and you're looking for answers. And, of course, to a third group, to those of you who might be a little distrustful of therapists saying, I wouldn't walk in the door of one, but you're just curious enough or unhappy enough to be looking for answers yourself. So welcome to Self Work. Before we get started, I wanted you to know that Facing Depression, my new course all about depression, what causes it and what you can do about it, is available now exclusively on Himalaya Learning. Himalaya Learning is an audio learning platform that provides an extensive library of courses straight to your ears from the world's greatest minds like Malcolm Gladwell, Tim Ferriss, Seth Godin, and more. To listen to this course and others like it, go to Himalaya.com slash depression and enter promo code OVERCOMING at checkout to get your first 14 days free. I hope to see you there. Perhaps some of you remember that my husband and I were lucky enough to have one son via IVF or in vitro fertilization. I was 39 when he was born, my husband 45, so we were definitely older parents and thought a lot about what that would mean for any child we might have. Obviously, they would be an only child. And that fact was fraught with worries brought on by early myths that were created by research and theories that came out of a very different time. So in this episode of Self-Work, sponsored once again by Athletic Greens, who I'm so happy to have on board, we're going to look into the facts about being an only child, about birth order in general, and about parent-child fit, basically how the fit between a parent and child's temperament affects the relationship. For example, I've had many a patient who said, my mother never liked me, or it was obvious she was closer to my older sister, or something like that, and maybe that was true, but maybe it was also that their fit was off, or not as easy as the fit between their mom and their sibling, or something like that. So that's what we're going to talk about. We also have a listener voicemail that asks a question about how to handle a partner not being emotionally available. She asked it after listening to the episode on trauma bonding, but wanted to hear more as she herself has just gotten out of a relationship with a covert narcissist. She says, I keep attracting people who aren't emotionally supportive, and yet I keep craving it when I know they can't give it. So I'll answer her. What would you say? So sit back, relax, or keep your eyes on the driving, whatever you're doing. And I'm so glad you're here at Self Work. Many people have a Christmas tree ornament that's a picture of their baby or their first birthday remembrance. We have one as well. It was our first picture of our son for sure, but it's actually a picture of a few embryos in a Petri dish that was taken during the in vitro fertilization process. We don't know which embryo he actually is, but he's in there somewhere. In fact, I've heard him joke, I bet I'm the only one here that's lived in a Petri dish. (laughs) It's, I guess, kind of family humor. But I was very aware from his first day on Earth that he would be an only child. 
I needed to try to ensure that he made childhood friends that would be able to, or or at least sort of be able to, remember family things with him, like siblings would ideally do. Sure enough, his best friend is also an only child, and they've stayed close for years. I say ideally because we all know that not all sibling relationships are good. In fact, some are downright awful, right? But today we're going to bust some myths about only children, birth order, and we're going to talk about the importance of the fit between parent and child. Alfred Adler, one of Freud's contemporaries, that's Sigmund Freud, was the first person to write about how birth order affects children, and he made some fairly sweeping statements about the characteristics of each child. He said things like, only children retain 200% attention from both parents. They may become the rival of one parent. They can be overprotected and spoiled. That as far as birth order is concerned, the oldest child is always dethroned by the next child and has to learn to share. They may become authoritarian or strict, but they can become helpful if encouraged. The second child always has someone ahead of him. So he may become a rebel or try to outdo everyone. Some of this is just kind of common sense. A middle child is sandwiched in. He may have trouble finding a place or become a fighter of injustice. My brother was a middle child and he's a lawyer, so I guess maybe that fits. I'm a youngest child, and so Adler would tell me I want to be bigger than others and I have huge plans that never work out. I can stay the baby and I'm frequently spoiled. Well, I was spoiled, that's true. And my dad always used to say, you know, you can always come home, but that's more because I was a girl. Anyway, those are some of Adler's ideas. He would also say that there were other things other than birth order, but that's what he's really known for, that and the inferiority complex, just to let you know. But a little even before him in the late 1800s, Bohannon and Hall basically found that being an only child was, and I quote, a disease in and of itself, That's what Hall said, and Bohannon said, only children have a marked tendency to peculiarities of the disadvantageous variety. (laughs) Nobody talks like that anymore, thank goodness. But Tony Falbo, who's a psychologist, a much more recent psychologist, really questions this research. For one thing, most of it was done with rural children who probably were much more isolated than the only kids of today. And she's done a great deal of child research and is considered an expert. Based on her examination of past studies, when compared to families with multiple children, only children surpassed several groups in the areas of character, achievement, and intelligence. And only children had better parent-child relationships. Now, it's interesting. She's an only child. Yet, even in these more recent studies, what's shown is that the larger the study, the less effect of birth order differences you actually see. Much more recent article by Emily Oster in the New York Times, in fact, in 2020, she stated, pulling all of this data together, it would seem that siblings do not have a large impact on most characteristics we can measure. In the end, neither the deprived younger sibling idea nor the awkward only child one hold much water. I really tried to look around and see if there was disagreement about this, but the more modern the article the more I found that they really said there's just not good research that there's a huge difference. A German psychologist, Frank Spinoth, says it's quite possible that the position in the sibling sequence shapes the personality, but not in every family in the same way. In other words, there may be an influence, but not a systematic one. I'll have all these articles in the show notes. So basically, we've kind of debunked the idea that there's a stereotypical only child or that even birth order, again, makes a stereotypical difference. 
And Dr. Spinath says that temperament is a much more likely candidate to differentiate siblings from one another. So now we're getting to temperament, which I think is very important to consider. So what is temperament? Before we define it, let's hear from Athletic Greens, which I find is an outstanding product that my husband and I now have been using for four to five months, and it's made a noticeable difference in my own stamina. I've noticed, for example, just this morning, I went on a walk after I'd taken it, and I live on a huge hill. I haven't walked that hill for months because I didn't feel like I could do it, and I did it this morning. So a really good personal endorsement there, but let's hear from Athletic Greens. When Athletic Greens reached out to me, I of course said I'd need to try the product, and I was actually shocked. It tastes great with cold water, and I felt more focused. I've had better digestion and energy. Even my non-health-conscious husband is loving it. Let me give you some facts. They call it a life-changing nutritional habit. To me, it's like giving yourself a gift every morning. It contains 75 vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced ingredients, including probiotics and something called adaptogens. It fits all kinds of diets and has less than one gram of sugar, and it's easy. One scoop in the morning, and you can do away with so many of those other expensive supplements that you swallow every night. And because I said a fervent yes to their sponsorship, you can visit athleticgreens.com slash selfwork, and along with the product, you'll receive a free year supply of vitamin D3, and most of us are deficient, and K2 in one tiny drop, as well as five convenient travel packs. Again, go to athleticgreens.com slash selfwork and experience it yourself. You know, I always focus on what you can do about it, and Athletic Greens fits the bill. So, back to talking about temperament. The definition in the APA Dictionary, which is the American Psychological Association Dictionary, is this. Temperament is the basic foundation of personality, usually assumed to be biologically determined and present early in life, including such characteristics as energy level, emotional responsiveness, demeanor, mood, response, tempo, behavioral inhibition, and willingness to explore. So basically, is your child high energy, low energy, very emotional, not so emotional? Do they have a happy demeanor, a sad demeanor, a fearful demeanor? What's their mood like? How do they tend to respond? Are they sort of a slow responder, a quick responder? Are they kind of shy and inhibited? Are they curious and and explore? Whatever. In fact, if you ask a parent to describe their kids, basically you'll hear a description of temperament. Oh, Jess is an explorer, or June always has got her nose in a book, or Jules is the prankster. The parent is describing how that child's personality has unfolded, what they've noticed, what they've observed. Now, obviously, the environment of that child and what's known as fit has an extraordinary effect on this unfolding. You put that fun-loving prankster in a family where the joking around is welcome and they laugh, then that aspect of their personality will shine. But what if that prankster or fun-loving kid is born into another kind of family, one that is very serious or is very rigid or is very autocratic? Here's a very fact-filled description of this occurring. Temperament refers, and this is going to sound kind of psychology-y, temperament refers to the behavioral style exhibited by infants and young children in different contexts in response to ranges of stimuli. (laughs) 
It is consensually defined as constitutionally based individual differences in emotional, motor, and attentional reactivity and self-regulation that appear early in life. Temperament in childhood is shaped in part by the actions of others, and its regulation is culturally dependent. Thus, childhood temperament emerges through the biological organism's transactions with the social environment. I'm a psychologist, but I get lost in that kind of language. Basically, your temperament reflects how you respond as a baby to your world, and there are a lot of differences there. Ask any parent who has more than one child. But basically, science says that the culture you grow up in, and that could be ethnic, religious, regional, social, all kinds of things, has an effect on how your temperament unfolds. So there's an interaction. And there are lots of studies of maternal sensitivity to the temperament of the baby that's also important. How in tune is a mom with her baby? Now, I'm not leaving dads out here on purpose, but most of the studies involve moms. And you can see how postpartum depression becomes really important to consider here. But this is a huge field. Temperament has so many studies. So the parent has a temperament, the child has a temperament, and how well do those temperaments fit? What I've seen in my work with adults who are looking back on their past with their parent and telling themselves that they were somehow inferior to another child, it can really help to consider this fit. It reminds me of the question that those of you who have listened to self-work for a while may have heard me say. What do you know about someone that would explain their behavior that has nothing to do with you? In a way, now as an adult, you're trying to look objectively at someone, even a parent, and look at things not in a personal way, but in a more factual way. I'll give you two case histories of when I thought this was important. One is from a parent who was looking at his relationship with his children, and one was a young woman who was looking back on her relationship with her mom. Let's take the dad first. I well remember a dad I worked with years ago. He was a quite friendly guy, an avid golfer. He loved being out on the golf course and couldn't wait for the day until one of his children joined him. But none of his kids liked golf. One was into music and had a very introspective nature. The other had issues with addictions that had no time for such a more traditional sport. The latter child was the reason the dad had come into therapy, to learn how to not enable that child. But we also spent some time on his grief about his dream. He'd never even considered that he could grieve. But what he had done was sort of stay out of supporting his musical child. He let his wife do that and didn't realize that the differences in their temperaments was keeping him more distant and not leading him to want to learn more. And I'm happy to say that through therapy, he did exactly that. He wanted to understand more, and he did his best to understand more about his child's temperament and his musicality. But here's the case of the young woman. She described herself in our very first session as a high-functioning borderline. She sort of laughed when she said it, meaning she had a lot of insight into how her emotions had to be managed carefully so they didn't govern her and create chaos. She'd already had quite a bit of really good therapy. And after a few months of working with her, what kept coming up was her sense that her mom much preferred her sibling and even disliked her. Yet when we started looking at things more objectively, what was evident was that her temperament had been more difficult for her mom. She'd been a rebel and had made choices that her mom didn't understand. Her mom was one of those more careful people about what people thought, and she had a more conservative nature. They both loved each other. 
So as my patient began to frame her problems with her mom as being about fit, it helped her not take things so personally and realized that with a bit of adjustment, both she and her mom could move toward each other. So she brought the fit issue up with her mom, who also warmed the idea because actually her mom had always felt kind of guilty about it. That recognizing, yes, we don't fit quite as easily, but when we run into that, we'll simply be open about it. And that was a godsend in their relationship because of the clarity that understanding fit brought to them. It also helped that my patient became a mother herself and they had something that bonded them together even more. So what do you do if you anticipate when a fit is going to be more difficult between you and a child? What can you do? I found this list of suggestions. So let's also make sure we understand the goodness of fit between infant and parent may best predict security of attachment. So first you want to identify your child's temperament traits. You want to write them down. And number two, describe what you are observing to the child. Like, you don't like new places. You like to watch until you feel comfortable. You're not hungry, but you have to sit with us at the table for a few minutes and then go play. You reflect back to them what you see about their temperament, their choices, how they handle their environment, their emotions, their moods. And you do it in a very non-shaming way. So the child begins to understand their own temperament and be accepted. You also concurrently identify your own temperament traits and notice how they affect your own behavior. Then you consider whether your temperament traits and those of your child fit together easily. If not, just recognize any difficulties. You don't have to shame yourself. For example, a parent who has low sensitivity may have more difficulty being patient with a child with higher sensitivity who can't tolerate, for example, to feel the tags on his T-shirts. But if you are high sensitivity, then you'll understand exactly what that child is going through. But just because you don't understand it on a personal level doesn't mean you can't have empathy with it. And this is the fifth. If you avoid criticizing or labeling your child with words such as forgetful, wild, fussy, quitter, or shy, you just avoid the negative labels. I hope this is helpful. So I think temperament is a really important thing to monitor in yourself, to understand in your children, no matter what their birth order or if they're only children, and to help you stay more objective about how easy or hard your relationship might be. Our listener email focused on emotional unavailability. Hi, Dr. Rutherford. I want to thank you for your amazing podcast and um, self-work group on Facebook. It's been extremely helpful for these last couple of months for myself. And I wanted to say especially thank you for the trauma bonding episode. I am recovering from covert narcissism in my life and seem to be attracted to them, sadly. I would like you, if you could, to talk about emotional unavailability because I seem to attract a lot of people in my life who are emotionally unavailable and then I keep craving their love and support when I know they can't give it. Thank you. Several of this listener's words stuck with me. As she said, she knew that each partner wasn't capable of emotional support or availability, but she stayed in the relationship yearning for it. There's several ideas that came to mind. I'd love to hear yours. 
First, she may be someone who tells herself that she can change her partner or teach her partner somehow how to be available. Now, that's doable very slowly if a partner is willing to try, if they themselves desire to learn how to become more available or what in essence is more vulnerable. But if that desire isn't there, then nothing will happen. This listener also may be repeating a pattern that is familiar because she lived it out in her family. Maybe one or both parents weren't available or scorned her for her own emotional vulnerability. So even though it would seem like she would choose the opposite, the pain of it is very familiar, and she unconsciously has chosen what is familiar. Let me say that again. So sometimes we're drawn and we don't see pain because it's just familiar. It's what we know. So we don't see it as painful. We just choose the familiar. But it's interesting. The opposite could be true. Maybe she grew up in a family or had a relationship with a parent where there were no good emotional boundaries or appropriate boundaries that were healthy. One parent maybe was far too enmeshed in her life, was intrusive and far too close. So she really wants closeness, but at the same time, she fears it. It's called a fear of engulfment that can happen after enmeshment, meaning you really fear that others will overtake you, kind of swallow you up whole. So, what happens? She chooses people who won't or don't know how to be emotionally available to her. So, they're certainly not going to engulf her, right? (laughs) So, in some way, she's overcorrecting a familial pattern. Another idea, perhaps she's afraid of intimacy altogether for whatever reason. Perhaps she's been hurt, and vulnerability can take a lot of trust. And so, she's continuing this pattern over and over Her term yearning made me think about something we've talked about before on self-work, the difference between withholding something versus not being capable of giving it. That's a huge distinction and one that'll leave you yearning if you believe someone is holding something back from you or refusing to give you something that they actually have. You're sort of like a dog begging for a treat that they see in your hand. But sometimes people just aren't capable. And if that's what you want, then that's not the relationship for you. I had one more thought. I've also had patients who begin their relationships most often sexually. And because the sex is good, they project the idea that the relationship will work and start investing in it emotionally way too soon. And actually, it's not true that it can be emotionally safe. Because you can have great sex with someone who has no clue how to be emotionally healthy. So what I've always said to these folks is to wait until... You know someone better emotionally, and you can see how they function emotionally before you're intimate. So it could be one or none of these things. I don't know her history, but when you look back and see what you learned about love, you can begin to piece together your own pattern, what's familiar, what's painfully familiar, what you're scared of because of what you went through. And of course, if you can't have this kind of objectivity by yourself, That's what we therapists hopefully are good for. Thank you, as always, for being here at Self Work. I have something very exciting to tell you, and I'll include the link for those of you who are curious. I woke up one morning this week to discover that there was a list at Parade Magazine on the 40 best books about depression that could actually help. And Perfectly Hidden Depression was on that list. 
The other people on the list are amazing writers, and I could not be more honored to be in their company. So thank you, Parade Magazine. Thank you to Caitlin Vogel, who was the author of the article. And again, I'll have it in the show notes. Thanks to those of you who've been leaving ratings and reviews about Perfectly Hidden Depression. They just keep coming. So that's really wonderful. It's a book written for those of you who need to control everything in your life, including your emotions. And you've done it for so long, you don't really know how to undo it. And you're even scared to do so. Hopefully, the book can help. And of course, to those of you who are leaving ratings and reviews wherever you listen to self-work, thank you so very much for that. I have a not-so-secret, because I'm telling you, goal, by the time I reach my fifth-year anniversary here at Self-Work, which will be in October, I'd love to have a 1,000 ratings. That would be really, really cool, and would get the word out by the simple view of a number that there are lots of people who think Self-Work is helpful. And of course, subscribe wherever you listen. That would be great, too. Or you can go over to drmargaretrutherford.com and subscribe there. That's my website, and you receive a weekly newsletter with my weekly blog post and my weekly podcast episode, as well as announcements like uh, the Himalaya.com thing that I talked about at the beginning. There are a few announcements in there just to keep you informed. You can email me at AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com or leave me a message on SpeakPipe, which you'll find in the show notes or on the website. I'd love to hear from you personally. Thank you again for being here. You can join my private Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. Would love to have you there as well. Please take very, very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self-Work.